everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your co-host Bridget Keats. And I'm TJ West. We are talking today about season three, episode 12, The Corpse Flew First Class. Say that fast three times. I love it when they include the word corpse in the title. (laughs) Tell us what happens in this episode, as if the title doesn't give it away. It does give it away. So in this episode, JB is going across the pond to London. Sorry, I feel like all TV does that when it's going to London. It does, yes. And it seems oddly apropos, considering that the coronation just happened at some point. I didn't watch it, so Do I don't know. Do you think she would have been there if she had still been alive? Angela? Um, No, it was pretty small this it time. It was pretty small, and she was, you know, kind of, had become a little bit less public-facing. Actually, now I feel weird, because we said it was pretty small, and it actually was, like, in terms of guests at the actual Abbey, but, like, it was, like, bajillions of dollars, and so people who are listening are going to be like, define big, you guys. <laughs> I mean, assuming that anyone else in our audience... Well, 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 I guess there is probably a pretty... The Venn diagram between fans of Murder, She Wrote and fans of, like, the coronation is probably... There's a lot of intersection there, I would imagine. Probably. Probably some now, overlap. Now, the question is, the, the, where's the Venn diagram of fans of Cabot Cove Gazette, fans of Murder, She Wrote, and the coronation? Like, that's what we need to figure out. Like, that's the audience we need that's to be... the sweet <laughs> spot. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jessica's on... En route to London when it turns out that a bodyguard for a very fabulously wealthy heiress played by Captain Janeway, I mean Kate Mulgrew, (laughs) has ended up dead. And so now we have to figure out who did it as well as where this missing very expensive necklace is. So there's a lot of, there's both a jewel heist narrative and a murder narrative. Maybe that's why it's such a good episode, right? Because yes. it's got both. And I mean, as we know, like, I'm usually on the Cabot Cove episodes, like, those are the ones I like the most, but I thought this one was very Agatha Christie-ish. Um, of course. And not just... Death I mean, the Clown. Death, yeah, ex- exactly. Um, which is, is very much, I think, an intertext, whether explicitly or implicitly, with this episode. So I really liked it. But also just that sense that, like, everyone's trapped Mm -hmm. in this environment. You can't get out. Nobody else can get in. Nobody else can get out. Like, I love murder Uh mysteries like that because the puzzle is so tight, right? It had to be one of these people in this cabin. Yep. I've just watched an episode of – this is not at all germane, but Poker Face, the new, like, Uh Columbo. It is actually germane. Um, was uh, uh, this ha- the episode I watched last night, which aired a couple months ago, took place in a cabin, and I was like, I was rubbing my hands. I was like, Oh, I love this oh, stuff. I yes. love it. But anyway, so you're right because I think that these enclosed spaces create that sense of like narrative and spatial claustrophobia because like we mm-hmm. know it has to be one of these people, and like they, you know, there's obviously the risk that they could kill again because you're trapped in the clouds. Like you know, it's quite terrifying in its own way. I think that also, uh, just as like a viewer, you know, sometimes Murder, She Wrote throws in some weird stuff last minute. They have like some Hail Mary solution. And you're like, that's not fair. I couldn't have figured that out because you didn't give me all the pieces. And so in an episode like this, I really like it because we get to, the, you know, but as the plane's taking off, we're sort of jumping around the different seats and we get these little vignettes of who each of these passengers are. So we get to know them really well so we can make assumptions and we can start doing the deductive work along with Jessica. It's just so great. Mm-hmm. Which I guess leads me to my question, which is, uh, did you deduce that our quote-unquote inspector from Scotland Yard who just happened to be on the plane and just happened to strike up a conversation with Jessica in the airport lounge beforehand, 
did you deduce that he was not, in fact, a Scotland Yard inspector? I did, and I said to Aaron, I was like, I bet you this guy, I bet you the investigator did it, or the inspector did it. Right, he just seems way too fake, right? Fake, but also suspiciously charming. Like, anytime you see a, you know, a Brit being that charming, they're almost certainly the murderer. (gasps) Oh my gosh, you're right. I never realized that about the show, but I think you're right. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, there's a long history in American pop culture of British villains, and particularly the, it's very indicative of American culture's, like, fascination with, but yet deep hostility and skepticism toward Britishness. Like, we love it and hate it, much like the Romans hated and loved the Greeks, so. I'm thinking about um, one, one, this episode and that one, impossible to say, one white rose of death, Mm -hmm. um, and how she had the, like, substitute chauffeur who was, like, so friendly and gregarious, and then, no, he was a bad guy, and I think you're onto something here. Yep. The more charming the British guy, the more likely he is either a murderer or just someone. This guy isn't a murderer, but he's nefariously involved in this jewel heist. Yep. And totally faking that he is an inspector. He used to be an inspector, right. but he's not anymore. Yeah. Yep. And he, which is very, you know, he does it very well. And, you know, because I like the way this episode draws attention to, like, the fact that he wears, like, the pin that is representative of a certain, like, status. Yes. Like, it's really, I mean, it's not just a great episode of Murder, She Wrote. I think it's also just a really finely constructed murder mystery uh-huh. of the, you know, the Agatha Christie variety. Uh-huh. Like, the narrative works, the characters work. Like, I think that all the pieces just, it's one of those sort of platonic ideal episodes of Murder, She Wrote that I think is what makes it so pleasurable for both of yeah. us. So let's talk about the Jewel Heist first. So we said he was the one who was involved in it. And so what happened yep. was um, Captain Jane Bay gets on the plane with this really expensive necklace and their plan is to steal it and switch it with a fake, which they succeed in doing. Um, and the guy, there's another guy on the plane. I call him Victor Newman light. That's very apt. He just, he's Victor Newman light, right? (laughs) His real name is Robert Walker jr. But anyway, he he'll be back in another episode of murder. She wrote where he's like, actually your heart will just break for him. But anyway, um, he confesses to having taken the necklace, and I think he even confesses to the murder at one point, all so that our fake inspector can take him into custody and march him off the plane and through customs, and he's like, I got this guy in custody. And everybody just sort of lets him go, which is weird. You think they would want, like, some credentials or proof or something. And then um, – and Jessica figures out that's what their plan is, right? Like, it takes mm-hmm. the two of them to pull off the – so it's it's a really good heist story, though. Mm-hmm. And as they're, like, walking out of Heathrow, they get summoned to the security office. And somehow Jessica has beaten them there. And it's I don't believe that. I don't know how she would have done that. But it's this great moment where he walks in and, like, there's Jessica. And she's like, nice try. I know exactly mm-hmm. what you're doing. So that is a really good plot. And I mean, it's also just very indicative. Because I think it's actually quite plausible that people would not question a police officer. Like, if you are able to... Uh, not airport security, though, surely. Yeah, pre-9-11. Like, remember, like, things were... I know. What? I mean, we, we saw people, like, walking onto this plane without having their bags searched. People are smoking. People are just buying their tickets and walking right on. Like, totally different world. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that was one of the other things that stood out to me. You know, we talk a lot on Cabot Co. Gazette about how Murder, She Wrote is like a time capsule of the 80s. Yeah. Like, and one this is one of those moments that makes that really crystal clear is like, just how different flying is as an experience than it would have been, like, than it is now. Like, where it's yeah. a huge pain in the ass to fly anywhere. 
It's, uh, it's miserable. But can I, uh, let's dive into one of the side plots that actually, it's just cutesy. It's mm-hmm. just there for cutesiness, but I think it, it emphasizes how different things are, which is that these two Americans are flying to London for a holiday. They, they've probably saved up for a really long time to go on this trip, but they have a little tiny dog and they don't know what to do with him. His name is Bert. And so they just put him in a bag. They're going to, they sneak him on the plane. So, like, nobody's looking through anybody's bags, clearly. Right? You just walk on the plane. And then their plan is to, like, sneak him through customs by putting him in somebody's coat. And he's so little he'll fit in, like, a coat pocket. Um, and, again, like, you're not, like, strip searched the way you are basically right. are now when you try to go anywhere. And it, it is just such a cute little story because the whole time they're, like, sweating over this investigation. All the passengers are being searched. And they're like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. You know? And they seem so suspicious. And it's right. like. No, they, they just have a dog. And when Jessica figures out that this is what they're hiding, she actually, like, covers her face and, like, is cracking up. And then later is like, you can go to France. He won't be quarantined in France. So, you you know, she obviously feels like a lot of sympathy for what they've tried to pull off. Right. So just so our listeners know, if you don't know this already, Britain has a very stringent pet quarantine uh, process. Like, if you move yes. there with your pet, they have to basically stay in quarantine for six months. Most places do. They don't let you just walk off a plane with a pet. Right. It's a long-ass time, and I can't imagine being separated from my pet for six months. Like, that seems like a terrible well, thing. Well, and if they're going on vacation, that's just not feasible, right? They're probably going to be there two weeks or something, right? Right, which makes me wonder why they just didn't get house in, but anyway. Her, but yeah. yeah, right? But, I mean, I will say that Mary Jo Catlett, who plays the woman, like, is perfectly cast for this sort of slightly yes. befuddled, utterly, you know... Very naive, but well-meaning owner of a pet. Like, she, I mean, this is the kind of role Mary Jo Catlin was born to play, and she does it so perfectly that you can't help but love her. Even during those moments where you're like, oh my god, is she the murderer, or is she the jewel thief? But nope. Just hiding a dog. Right, because you don't want to believe that, because she just right, doesn't exactly. seem like the type, but they're so nervous. Yes. And then she and they, says, Bert made me do it, and Jessica's like, who the hell is Bert? It's the little doggy with his little rhinestone collar and his little like bows in his ear. I mean, he's such a cute little doggy. Just so listeners know, I'm not a huge like fan of small dogs. I'm much more of a big husky dog kind of fan. But yeah, TJ's an asshole. But I have two tiny littles, and uh, one of them is always sitting on my lap while we're recording this podcast, and often his snores get picked up by the microphone. And so I love this little side plot. I also just really like that Jessica is like, feels bad that they got caught and is trying to help them. It's very sweet on her part. Right. I was tempted to look up France's quarantine policy, but I didn't have time before this show. So if our listeners know what the quarantine policy is in France, feel free to let us know. (laughs) It's probably changed a little bit since 1985 or 80. We're in 86 now. Yeah, we need to do a deep dive and see what the uh, the pet policy in France was <laughs> circa 1986. Um, so that's one of the things that's obviously changed a lot. The other that's changed a lot is, uh, you know, like murder on a plane. So Kate Mulgrew, the goddess. Um, can we just, like, turn the rest of this episode into a Kate Mulgrew appreciation podcast? I mean, qu- quite honestly, that's what I was hoping would happen. Like, because <laughs> I... I'm utterly entranced by her. And this in the way that I often I am by her. stars. Like I, I'm often a, a viewer who was drawn to particular star texts and star individuals. Like if a show or a movie has a star that I love, I will literally watch the whole thing just for them, just because their presence is so pleasurable to encounter on the screen. 
she has presence, doesn't she? Like whatever agent saw her had great vision because she is such a presence. And I think she, I mean, she's just the Catherine Hepburn of her generation, right? She has the poise and the grace and she just fills the screen and is gregarious and intelligent. And then that brash, husky voice. Uh, it's like she is so alluringly feminine, but not feminine. Right. And I don't know how else to say it, capture it except to say she's Hepburn, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, I love her so much. Yes, I would 100% agree. And I think that part of what you're picking up on, and I think that the Hepburn comparison is an apt one, is that first of all, she looks significantly like Hepburn. Like she has the same kind of angularness, the high cheekbones, this, you know, the faint whiff of androgyny. Um, it. it it's similar to like how Kate, both Kate Blanchett and Tilda Swinton also have that kind of androgyny, but are also deeply feminine. Uh-huh. And so I think they're all part of that cadre of female stars that have that. And as you say, beneath all of that, though, there's that core of iron. It's there in the, as you as you characterize it, the husky voice, but it's also there in just like the way the kind of characters that she plays. There's yes. always like a core of iron that you do not want to mess with this woman. Mm-hmm. Strong, intelligent women. I mean. So um, Voyager, I knew her before Voyager because of Murder, She Wrote, but Voyager got me through some really, really dark days in my late 20s. It was like what I turned to and it was like, oh, I'm friendless and they will be my friends. And so I have this like just deep abiding love for Captain Janeway. But I think- I believe in TV studies, they call that parasociality. They do. It's a parasocial relationship. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I think what what I appreciate about Captain Janeway is that she's the captain. So she's like this- figure of authority but she's um unlike some of the other captains like especially patrick stewart whom i adore as captain picard he's very aloof right he has this sort of british french aloofness and she's very warm and like is laughing and like elbows people and laughs along with them and so there's it's it's that same combination that you're talking about and i think that's a sort of through line in her characters although the russian chef in orange is the new black is maybe somewhat different but (laughs) <laughs> oh, she's just so great in this and she'll be back in season eight and back in season 10 so i we just ugh. and what i particularly appreciate about her role in this episode is that she captures glamour as well like that's a, mm-hmm. a t- quality that not everyone can do convincingly mm-hmm. um lansbury can do it obviously but you know it's nice to see somebody else who just exudes like you believe that she's an, a fabulously wealthy heiress with all of the hauteur and like you know what it occurs to me teach because the whole episode takes place in the space of like a five-hour flight so there's only one costume per character mm-hmm. and her costume is so perfect it's like exactly what a rich person would wear on a flight right it's pants and it's knit so it's comfortable but it's like white which means rich because the rest of us get her clothes dirty and can't get them cleaned or fixed and it's fur trimmed and then she's got these like dangling jewels everywhere i mean it's just it's such a good outfit right because she's going to some gala or some other some other silly thing in the in london i forget exactly what it is like it's some big fancy thing that rich people do she's probably going to charles's coronation or something (laughs) yes exactly well that's why it seems so apropos this is one of those episodes that feels Strangely timely, timely. Even though it's, it's yeah. not at all connected to the uh, to the of uh, the present. Jessica, speaking of how the world has changed, is going to do research on a murder in Northumbria, which feels like a thing you would not need to go all the way to England to do at all. Nor would most authors ever have the money to do. Most of us would just Google it. Well, especially, I mean, I want to talk about that for a minute. Like, I think that there are certain kinds of genres where a sense of place is really important. Like, if, if say, for example, you were writing a 
historical novel set in Northumbria. Like you might want to go there just to sort of capture the the ambiance. Is you know if if uh-huh. you were if you had the money. Yeah. I, I mean, I kudos to Jessica for being so committed to her craft that she's willing to do that. But it's just yeah. like, I'm not sure that like a pot boiler murder mystery is going to be like, people don't read murder mysteries to be like, oh, I love the way they I got they- swept away by this <laughs> description of setting. In right, fact, exactly. in today's murder mysteries, you're not even allowed to describe the setting. It's like just right. action, 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 right? Yeah. So it's just like, okay, well... Uh, I'll go with this, but I was just, it just struck me that I was like, well, clearly Jessica's writing kind of murder mystery that people, you know, relies a lot on setting if you're going to go all the way to Northumbria. But it's also not the first time they've intimated that she writes maybe, maybe not true crime, but like fictionalized, you know, like ripped mm-hmm. from the headlines sort of takes on true crime. Uh, which is weird because she's Jessica and she's highly imaginative. And I'm just sort of I just wish I had time to, like, ask Jessica where she gets her ideas and why sometimes she researches real murders. And- well, maybe we need to read all those, you know, paratextual books that were written about J- JB. <laughs> maybe one of them has revelation <laughs> into the actual crap. I mean, I'm curious to see, like, how other people have filled in the gaps, as it were, yes. of Jessica's creative process. Because we're both writers. Like, we both know that, you know, there is an advantage to going to places. But as you as you say, like, certain genres lend themselves to that kind of research and others don't i just i have many questions i have a lot of questions about the the writing process of jp fletcher so in addition to captain jane way and victor newman light and the original housekeeper from different strokes we have uh pat harrington aka schneider whom we last saw in footnote to murder he's on the plane he's a movie producer he's got a really crappy script and he asks jessica to be a script doctor and she's like no <laughs> Because it's some schlocky movie called, like, Off-Road Aliens 2 or something. And she's like, no, go away. And he says that he will just keep asking. He's like, I'll talk to your agent. Like, you work on this for the rest of the flight and we'll sort out the payment later. And I'm just like, oh, that's how screenwriters get jobs? (laughs) Now we know, right? I don't know why you guys are all on strike. Because clearly jobs are just literally falling from the sky. Um but anyway, he says he's just going to keep badgering her the rest of the flight. And so she's like, okay, great. I will do this because I just want you to leave me alone. Um, and so she takes the script. And I'm not sure when she has time to read it because she's solving a murder the rest of the flight. But at the end of the flight, uh, when they've all landed back in Heathrow, she gives it to him and is like, oh, this is a great. It's going to make a great movie, art house. It's I, I feel cinema verite, which doesn't even make sense because um, that's like a documentary mode. But she's so she's using all these like artsy fartsy terms that this in this guy is like horrified. He's like, okay, I better trash this because that's not what we want with off road aliens too. Right. I I mean I too was like cinema verite seems like an odd descriptor. <laughs> um, make any sense. <laughs> I was like, well, all right. <laughs> but I guess that's the point. That's like the I point, guess yeah, it, it's a signifier, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But I, lo- I just love that she's like you know, playing along with that. And so we get, you know, the happy ending again, where she's like, he trashes the script and she's, this customs officer says, do you have anything to declare? And he says, yeah, this is a dud, like trashes the script. And she's laughing. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's just a really nice, um, I think back to the, you know, original spiel of murder. She wrote where we always end with that little coda. Uh-huh. So, we also have in this episode, James Shigeta, also known as Mr. Takagi from Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's amazing. 
And then um, teach our fake Scotland Yard inspector is um, David Hemmings. But this is his only murder she wrote. Is he, do you know him from somewhere? Is he somebody I'm supposed to know? Because he seems so familiar. He does look very familiar. I would have to look at his IMDb page because you're right. There is something very much that seems like I've seen him somewhere before. Yeah. But I can't quite figure out where. Yeah, that's how I felt too. Maybe he's in an episode of, like, I don't know, some British show that we both watch. Maybe. Or maybe it's just he's like Murder, She Wrote British Guy, and they all just sort of have the same feel. I don't know. Yeah, that could be. But, you know, in many ways, this episode feels like it should have been a Michael Haggerty episode to me, because it's like overseas hijinks with a jewel heist. Right. Which I'm glad it wasn't, because you know I'm not a big fan of I know you're not. I wonder if they tried to write it as one, though, because it feels like it. he would have fit in nicely. It does have the feel of one, yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway, so let's talk about what Captain Janeway actually did, which was something. She did a little naughty. She did have, yes, she did. So what did she do, exactly? Well, she murdered somebody. She did. <laughs> <laughs> she had a little oopsie. So um, she is flying with... This guy who is her chauffeur slash lover, and she finds out that he's been cheating on her. Essentially, he's been babyfacing her, those of you who know that glorious Barbara Stanwyck movie. Yes. Um, so he's just sort of been sleeping his way up and up and up the ladder, trying to, you know, move up the ranks in entertainment. And um, so she convinces him he's a nervous flyer so she messes with his uh-huh. tape that he's going to listen to is like relaxation hypnosis tape um so that he's panicking and then so she oh i have tranquilizers you can take and she's conveniently poisoned them and of course because everyone gets so obsessed with the fact that the necklace is missing and she's so disturbed about the necklace because she that wasn't part of her murder it seems for most of the episode like she's not involved although i gotta tell you like there's one point where they ask her to She's, like, looking at the body and, like, going through its pockets, the pockets of the dead body. And I'm, like, if that's her lover, like, uh, what? Like, wouldn't you be sobbing hysterically? Like, how on earth would you just be rifling through the pockets and then get really upset about a necklace? Like, I don't care about a $2 million necklace. My lover is dead. Mm, I mean, I would probably be upset if if $2 million went missing in the form of of a necklace. I would probably be... Okay, you might be, but you would also be, like, sobbing so much that there'd be, like, snot coming out of your face. <laughs> right? It's your lover who just well, died and got yeah, murdered but, on an yeah, airplane. Yeah, lover, not boyfriend or, you know, significant other or partner. Like, Good lord. Are we gonna parse? He's a boy toy. Like, one doesn't, one doesn't develop feelings for one's boy toys, Bridget. Well, she clearly did develop feelings for him because she murdered well, him. Well, I think... Because she was heartbroken. I think it was more a matter of aggrieved pride than it was actual heartbreak. Oh, interesting. Because she says no one leaves like an heiress or whatever. She, I forget exactly what she says, but she yeah. says something to the effect of like, nobody leaves, <laughs> nobody leaves a star to paraphrase Norma Desmond. Like, you know, she, it is very. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So I have a feeling it's more about her sense of like aggrievement than it is necessarily heartbreak. How dare he have done this to me? Yeah, I mean, this is. Which is also quite baby face too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, everyone is so focused on the necklace. That we assume the two are connected and uh, Jessica finally figures out like this weird jewel thief guy. Like, again, we're sort of back to Michael Haggerty's original appearance in Widow Weep for me, where it's like stealing jewels is one thing. Murder is something very different and it would make it inconvenient for you to continue stealing jewels. So this doesn't add up. And that's when 
her gloriousness struts into customs thinking that she's gotten away with it and jessica is there to stop her much like she stops mm-hmm. the fake inspector and is like oh captain janeway i know what you've done it's glorious as you say it's glorious whenever jb f- nabs her and it's like well actually you're not gonna get away with this either I love that device that they use in murder mysteries where the person thinks they've gotten away with it for a minute. I think, I just think it's so fun. It's just, it's the, the gotcha is so fun. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. there we go. That was the murder. So I want to ask you something since you're the fashion expert, what did you make of Jessica's outfit during this episode? Well, so I mentioned that everybody only has one out- outfit because we're on a plane. And um, I, I actually like Jessica's. I feel like we've seen this before. It's a dark red, sort of like um, brick red cowl neck knit dress with a belt. Uh, and I think it, it, again, much like Kate Mulgrew's, you know, it looks quite comfortable for being on an overseas flight, but it's also very elegant. And, you know, there's one this marble teach. I can't remember which one. But I remember learning this from Agatha Christie. There's Miss Marple is talking about the difference between the working class and the upper class because the church, the church is having a picnic and the working class people have all worn their best clothes and the upper class people have worn tweeds because it's a picnic and your clothes might get dirty. And so you don't wear your best clothes, which they can choose not to do because they're still seen as high class no matter what they're wearing, right? And, and that always stuck with me. And I feel like their costumes in this episode are that way, too. It's like it's knitwear. It's comfortable. It's wrinkle free. But because they're wearing it and because they wear jewels with it or in Jessica's case, like a brooch, it's still very elegant, right? In a way that like you and I back in coach would probably be wearing some wrinkle free clothes and we'd look cheap, right? Or <laughs> we'd want to impress. Well, we're going to London. Let's impress. And so we'd overdress. <laughs> yeah. And then our clothes would get all rumpled and stained and like, anyway. So I just need to interject and say that this is why I bring this up is because Bridget has, I I may be gay, but I missed out on the fashion part of the gay, the gay gene. I know. So did. like, I always want Bridget to sort of explicate for us to use a big English. Well, you want me to wax poetic about wrinkle-free fabrics? I'm happy to no, do it. No, because I, but no, and I, I, I laugh, but I actually do think that your fine textured understanding of fashion is very useful because I think that it helps to understand and unpack the signification that clothes have mm. in visual media. Like I think mm-hmm. that you're like I think that's very a posit to draw on Miss Marple and to talk about how clothes signify certain ways. And I think that your knowledge is helpful and useful in that regard. So Yeah. Well what I learned from that Miss Marple was that I was a working class person because I was always wearing my fancy clothes to everything and after that well, yeah. i quit i quit I mean, doing for all it of, after that i mean we're both working class for all of our pretensions otherwise like <laughs> we both do everything in our power to disavow that but yeah anyway <laughs> um so that's this, our confessional <laughs> this is such a wonderful episode uh okay so we talked about death in the clouds right it's an agatha christie it's poirot Somebody gets murdered on a flight. It's a a tiny, tiny private plane in like the 30s, right? So there's like 10 people on the flight. Um, And someone seemingly dies in the middle of the flight, like in front of everyone. So it's like, how on earth did a murderer pull that off? But then we do have the plane land and the rest of the investigation takes place like on the ground Uh over a span of some weeks. Um, But there's a monk episode I'm wondering if you've ever seen where it's similar. It's an overseas flight. 
or maybe it's um, California to New York. And it's um, somebody murders his wife in the airport bathroom first and then has a lookalike get on the plane with him. And Monk is just like totally suspicious the whole time and like eventually figures out that there's been a murder before the like before the plane lands. I didn't watch Monk, so no. Well, you should because it ref. It, hmm. I think a lot of it draws on Murder She Wrote, which draws on Agatha Christie. Like I think they're all connected. But um, I love that. I just love that like closed, you know, tight. Right. And the ticking and the time is running out. Right. You have to solve this before we land. Right. So what you're saying is we have an ACCU, an Agatha Christie Cinematic Universe. Is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, but there are some people I don't think we should be invited into it. That's correct. I'm not going to say who because I don't want people to write me with hate mail, but <laughs> David Suchet will be the president of the universe. He is, as I've said many times and I will reiterate for our audience, he is the OTP. Like he is the one true Poirot. And if you had to name one true uh, female amateur sleuth, it would be? J.B. Fletcher, obviously. Yeah, good answer, good answer. Uh, with with Miss Marple as a, as a, as a follow-up. Mm-hmm. Or runner-up, sorry. You know, this is the thing I heard Eric McCormick say once on Inside the Actor Studio. He said, like, the allure of TV is, like, everyone has a Hamlet, right? And so as an actor, it's kind of fun. Like, what makes your Hamlet different from everyone else's Hamlet? But everyone has a Hamlet. How many people get to play Will? Truman. Him. He's the literally the only person who gets to play that role ever unless they reboot it. Um, and I think that's, you know, like, Jessica Fletcher is iconic because there were 264 episodes where Angela Lansbury played Jessica Fletcher. Nobody else has played Jessica Fletcher. Ever. And I mean, I also think, I mean, admittedly, there are different Poros, but I think part of the reason that David Suchet is so beloved by the fandom, like, by the Christie fandom, is because he's been in more episodes than anyone else. He did it for 30 years, right? right. And he, well, and that he is, like, Quintus, like, his, he captures the essence of Poirot, the character, as Christie wrote him. So, like, yeah. that's just not up for debate. Like, I don't think anyone yeah. would question that. And I would similarly add that uh, not up for debate is who is the Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Stanwyck of maybe not our time, but the 80s and 90s. And that answer would be Kate Mulgrew. Yes, I would 100% agree. <laughs> I also I just, um, I, I know we're running out of time, but I've been thinking about this all week in preparation for this discussion. And I just, we have several of the Voyager cast members who appear in Murder, She Wrote. And so in my head canon, there's some day when they're waiting for the lights to get changed on the set and they're all like having lunch outside their trailers and they're all talking about what it was like to meet Angela Lansbury and like be on Murder, She Wrote. And I just like, I love the image of that. I really hope that's true. I would, I would willingly believe that even if it weren't true. Yeah. Okay, well, that's probably a good place to stop. I, speaking of Stanwyck Teach, am deeply, deeply looking forward to next week. Next week's is Crossed Up. Oh. Do you know this episode yet? No, I probably have seen oh. it, but, but no, I can't remember it right offhand. Oh, it's going to be so great. I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I look forward to it as well. And we hope you'll be back for it. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next time. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.